Hi there, friends, and welcome to One Tribe Online. It is great to be with you this morning, and you've landed in part three of our four-part series on the incredibly exciting topic of heaven. This is a series of talks that is designed to help you and I to live prepared to die and to die prepared to live. Wherever you are, whoever you are, chances are you fall into one of two camps. The first camp, the first group of people who are listening to this talk, you, you'd be well described by one of the passages in the Bible. It's in the book of Hebrews. And it talks about, it talks about those who have been kept slaves, held in slavery by the fear of death. The fear of death is something that the Bible says can actually make us feel like and actually be slaves as we're living and walking. That's the first group of people, the first camp that you might be in. The second camp would be exemplified by a man who helped write the Bible. His name was Paul. And Paul was writing a letter to some friends in a place called Philippi. And Paul said this. He said that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the second camp that you might be in. Maybe you're currently held captive slave to the fear of death. Or maybe like Paul, you're able to say, actually, for me to live, it's all about Christ anyway. And to die, to die, that's a bargain deal. To die is gain. Human beings fall into one of two camps. And here's the good news about this morning, that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died a death in our place to move us from the first camp, slaves to the fear of death, and into the second camp, able to say, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If we're honest, many of us would say we do fear death. If we're honest, many of us would say, looking forward to heaven, I don't spend a lot of my waking moments looking forward to heaven. Why is that? Well, the first reason is because there's a lot of ignorance. There's a lot we don't know about heaven and the afterlife. But the second reason, if we're honest, is that what we've been led to believe that heaven is all going to be, going to be all about, um, well, when I die, I'm going to sprout wings and a halo, and I'm going to put on some weight, and I'm going to sit on a cloud somewhere playing a harp. Now, I want to be honest with you, that, that doesn't excite me very much. And it may not excite you very much. And the reason for that is you and I weren't designed to spend forever sitting on a cloud playing a harp. But the Bible paints a picture for us what we can look forward to. Philippians 3 verse 20, Paul says this. He says that our citizenship is in heaven. And we, listen to these words, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We want to talk about what it means that Jesus rose from the dead and that every person who can hear the sound of my voice will also rise from the dead. And we're going to look at that heading. We're going to look at that subject under three headings. Number one, what happened to Jesus? Number two, why is it important? And number three, what will happen to us? First question is, what happened 
to Jesus because according to Paul in Philippians chapter 3, somehow what happened to Jesus is central to understanding what's going to happen to you and I and every person who can hear the sound of my voice when we die. John chapter 20 verse 14, we pick up the story where Jesus has died on the cross. He's been in the tomb for three days. On the third day, a lady called Mary goes to the temp, goes to the, the tomb to um, look after Jesus' body and uh, um, put spices there and so on. And then this happens. At this verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize that it was Jesus. This is interesting. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. What I want us to pause and note over here is that Jesus has risen from the dead like you and I will one day rise from the dead. What happened to Jesus when he rose from the dead? He looked enough like the people you and I meet every day that Mary, who knew him well, actually thought that he might be the gardener. Next thing that happens, verse 16, is Jesus said to her, Mary, and then picture it, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, uh, 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 Rabbani, which means teacher. So first she couldn't recognize him because she thought maybe he's the gardener or something. But then when he says her name, Mary, She turns and at some point in that process, maybe because she recognizes his voice from before he was crucified, or maybe because she recognizes his facial features from before he was crucified. But when she hears or sees Jesus and pays more attention to him, she can see this is the Jesus I knew and, and recognized. I recognize him. A few verses down, verse 26, a week later, His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. This is great. Though the doors were locked, important detail. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So what is happening here is the Bible is telling us that after Jesus rose from from the dead, there was in some senses a continuity with the body that he had, before he was crucified. People could recognize him. He looked like a gardener like anyone else. But there was also a discontinuity. There were things that this body couldn't do after the resurrection. There are things that this body could do after the resurrection that it couldn't do before the resurrection. And one of these, as best we can tell from Scripture, was to pass through locked doors. Now, any person who's ever locked themselves out of their car or out of their house would love this power right now, to be able to move through locked doors. I don't have it now. But Jesus, it seems, after his resurrection, that's something he could do. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus is making the point here that now that he's risen from the dead, he didn't rise to become become some sort of Casper the friendly ghost who was immaterial and spooky. In fact, one place he he explicitly says to them, a ghost doesn't act like I'm acting like now. You, you can't see and touch and feel a ghost like you're seeing and touching and feeling me right now. Stories are told in the book of Luke of how 
of how he said to them at one point, hey, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him boiled fish to eat and he ate it in their presence. Ghosts don't do that. But Jesus was a pains for everyone to know that he rose again in a physical body. Verse 28, when Thomas, Thomas experienced this, he said to him, my Lord and my God. I, I, I love this. You know, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he invites Thomas, sometimes called doubting Thomas. That's good news for people who are listening. And if you're like me, sometimes you have doubts about different things, even about things relating to the Christian faith. And when Jesus faces our doubts, he, he does what he did with Thomas. He says, come and examine the evidence. And if you're, not where, if you're not sure where you are on your spiritual journey, I want to invite you, like Jesus is inviting you right now, to come a bit closer and examine the evidence. Read the Bible. Examine its claims. Jesus invites that. And when Thomas had done that, his response was, Wow, my Lord and my God. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In the last verse we're going to look at under this heading, what happened to Jesus, is from Acts chapter 1 verse 9. It says that after Jesus said this, he was taken up, picture of this, he was taken up before their very eyes and the cloud hid him from their sight. Jesus' body could have been mistaken for a gardener. It was recognizable from the way he was before the resurrection. You could touch it and feel it. He could eat broiled fish. He could hang out with his friends on the one hand, but on the other hand, it could move through locked doors. And he could rise up from the earth in this body as he was taken up to heaven. That's pretty cool. And friends, what happened to Jesus? Jesus experienced a physical, bodily resurrection. That's what happened to Jesus. Secondly, why is it important? Why does anyone care that Jesus rose physically and bodily in his resurrection? Well, we've got to back up for a moment because the Bible teaches us that God made everything good, spiritual and physical good, what we can see, what we can't see, good. But the Bible also tells us that when mankind sinned, everything became tainted by sin. Physical and spiritual became tainted. What we can see and what we can't see, everything was affected. And that's why Jesus came to rescue and to redeem everything, physical and spiritual, what we can see and what we can't see. That's different to what's taught by, for example, a Greek philosopher called Plato. Plato, very simply speaking, taught that the physical is bad, but the spiritual is good. It's kind of like Animal Farm, if you remember, four legs good, two legs bad. That's my sheep voice, by the way. Well, Plato would have taught that the spiritual is good, but the physical is bad. And that has led to what some people call the sacred secular divide, where we divide the world into sacred things which are good and spiritual and pleasing to God and secular things which tend to be more physical and aren't as pleasing to God. Look at four examples of that briefly. Example number one is that in the sacred secular divide, some, some days and times become more spiritual, more sacred than other times. 
And so Sunday becomes a spiritual day where we act and behave a certain way, but then we act and behave differently Monday through Saturday. That can devastate a continent. The second example of that is some spaces and places become sacred or spiritual, and others become less sacred. So church buildings, for example, we act one way and a different way everywhere else. A third example would be some people become more spiritual than others. For example, being a pastor is viewed as spiritual and sacred, whereas being a politician or a plumber is viewed as a more secular and less spiritual job. Lastly, some activities can become sacred or secular in our thinking. One example would be there are whole churches and denominations that say, if you want to be spiritual, if you want to be pleasing to God, then what you need to do is you need to not get married, not have sex, not have children, because those are physical, secular things. They're not, they're not for people who want to be really, really spiritual. It's the sacred-secular divide. And it changes the way we act on a daily basis. And Plato has really influenced our thinking. And that's why the fact that Jesus rose physically, bodily from the dead is so important. Because it means that Plato might have given up on the physical. Jesus hasn't given up on the physical. Jesus hasn't given up on humanity. Jesus hasn't given up on this world. And friends, if Jesus hasn't given up on this world, that means that there is hope for this world. And that changes everything. Firstly, what happened to Jesus? Secondly, why is it important? And thirdly, what's going to happen to us? First John 3 verse 2 gives us a clue. This is written by one of the people who was closest to Jesus before his resurrection. And uh, in First John 3 2, he says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God. This is an incredible promise for any one of us who will put our faith in Jesus. Now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. So there are aspects of it that we won't fully grasp, but we do know this, but we know that when he appears, get this, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What's going to happen to us? Well, according to this verse, it is intricately linked to what happened to Jesus. And um, we're going to have one of the Bible writers, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, coach us and train us in what is going to happen to us. And his greatest treatise on this subject is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 and 23 is where we're going to start off. He says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. According to Paul in these verses, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits refer to a harvest. If you had a harvest, the first fruits that came, you would collect those and call them the first fruits, and they would give you an indication of what the rest of the fruits to follow would be like. 
The Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits. In our more technological age, we may use the term prototype. Jesus is the prototype of the resurrection and our resurrection bodies. I heard a story about a prototype recently. It was referred to Steve Jobs, founder of Apple and iPhone and so on. And uh, people brought to him, his inventors brought to him the first prototype of the iPod. And Steve Jobs, he uh, looked at this prototype of the iPod. He played around with it. And he said, it's no good, too big. And his inventors, they said to him, you don't understand, Mr. Jobs, we had to reinvent inventing to get this prototype to you. This is, this is the best that we can do. And Steve Jobs grabbed a hold of the iPod. He walked across to an aquarium that was in the room and dropped the prototype of the iPod into the water. And as it sunk to the bottom, they could see bubbles rising up. And Steve Jobs said to his inventors, he said, you see those bubbles rising up? That means there's still space inside the iPod. It's too big. We need to get rid of that space. That iPod was a prototype of what was to follow. And Jesus's body is a prototype of our bodies to follow. Let's read on. Verse 35, but someone may ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Paul says, how foolish. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Paul says, if you want to know what the resurrection body will be like, Think of our bodies as being like a kind of seed. And what comes up out of the ground is so much more wonderful than that seed. All flesh is not the same, verse 39. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another. Birds another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Here theologian Wayne Gruden is so helpful on this word imperishable. He says our new bodies will not wear out or grow old or ever be subject to any kind of sickness or disease. They will be completely healthy and strong forever. He continues in these resurrection bodies. We will clearly see humanity as God intended it to be. So imperishable, raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. 
And man, when we see glory in the Bible, we think of Moses spending time in the glory of God. And when he came out, his face was literally radiant. We think of Jesus transfigured in Matthew 17, verse 2. And the Bible says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. I don't fully understand it all, but man, our bodies will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, Paul continues. It is raised in power. Back to Wayne Grudem. He says, full and complete human power and strength. The strength that God intended human beings to have in their bodies when he created them. Strength that is sufficient to do all that we desire to do in conformity with the will of God. Some people have wondered, man, will we have heightened senses in our new bodies? I I think so because they'll be raised in power. Some people have said, well, we have new senses, more than our five senses. Maybe. Next week, we'll be looking about how we're going to be in our new bodies. We're going to be in a new place called the new heavens and the new earth. And to fully take in the wonders of the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to need new senses. There's a song that says that there is a beauty far beyond, far, there's a beauty far beyond what eyes of flesh could ever see. So God's going to give you and I resurrection eyes to take in resurrection beauties on the new heavens and the new earth. More on that next week. It's sown a natural body. Verse 44, Paul says, it is raised a spiritual body. Now that word spiritual doesn't mean non-physical. What it means is that right now in our bodies, our bodies can be instruments of righteousness and pleasing to God, but our bodies sometimes can be instruments of unrighteousness. And as we sin in our bodies, they become displeasing to God. But when our bodies are raised, a spiritual body, our bodies will be physical, but fully yielded to the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we come in for a landing, I want to talk about what does this mean practically for you and I. And I want to talk about it in three areas. The first area is that it changes what you and I value. Because if Jesus valued the body enough to be raised into a physical body, it means that you and I look at our physical bodies in a new way. We look at the physical world in a new way. And we value it because Jesus values it. And Jesus has said that for all eternity, the physical will exist. We will spend eternity in bodies that will be like his glorious body. The second thing that this changes right here, right now, is it changes our anticipation of heaven. We don't think we're going to be these ghosts floating around on clouds. Man, we're going to have a body like Jesus's body that can can be touched and felt, that can eat and enjoy fish. Now, when I think about living in a new body, in a new heavens and a new earth that fuels our anticipation for the world to come. I start to see, oh, now I understand why Paul said for me to live as Christ, but to die is gain. And the last area that I want to talk about is I want to talk about how it affects our worship. This should affect our worship. And there's a principle here that's taught in the Bible, and that is that you and I become like what we worship. It's a spiritual principle. It's stated negatively in the book of Psalms, where it's talking about our human tendency to worship idols. 
And the psalmist says in Psalm 115 verse 4, it says, But their idols are silver and gold. They're made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but can't feel. Feet, but they can't walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Here's the principle. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Every person watching this video right now, listening to this talk, you were made to worship. You will worship something by default. And what we worship, we become like. If we worship dead idols, we become like that. If we worship the emptiness of fame and popularity and money and pleasure and power, we become like that. But more positively, as we worship Jesus right now, we become like him as he is. In Revelation chapter 1, we get this awesome picture of the resurrected Christ in glory. It says, verse 14, that his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus was dead, and now he's alive forever and ever, and he has set things up through his death on the cross, so that if you will put your faith in him in this lifetime, you can live with him forever and ever, and right now, as we spend lives worshiping him. The Bible says that we become like the one that we worship. We become like him. As we gaze on him, we are transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory into another. Friends, as we close this talk, why don't we take a moment to worship this risen Jesus?